May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I love words. Ah, I love words. I wish I had more of them. I just love them so, so much. I love certain words. I love how certain words sound like puddle and purple and punctuality. I love how they sound. I love how certain words can change their meaning just from the way you say them. Like, I hope I'm, I remember to record this sermon versus when I get home, I'm going to spin a record. It's the same word. Totally different meaning just by the way you say it. I love words. I love onomatopoetic words that are formed from a sound associated with it. Words like sizzle and boing and gargle. Mmm, I love words. But you know what my favorite words are? Churchy words. Mmm, I can't get enough of churchy words. I love churchy words. You know those ones that we keep in the vault we call the church and we only drag them out on Sundays. I think you've probably heard some of them in the scripture that Charlotte was reading. Words like salvation, redemption, intercession, justification, exaltation, glorification, sanctification. You have to bob your head when you say those words. I love churchy words. I love the churchy words that somehow escape. They sneak out the back door when no one's looking and now you can find them out in the big wide world. Words like grace and hope and mercy, they were ours first, you know. I love how certain probing and perfected phrases that rhyme with the divine, they, they say more than people know. Like when someone is described as being salt of the earth, that's from the Bible. Or when we say, God bless you, after someone sneezes, but my favorite, there but for the grace of God go I. I wonder how many people mean it when they say that. There but for the grace of God go I. That one, actually, it's not in the Bible, but it comes from a 16th century Englishman by the name of John Bradford who was standing out in the streets and he saw people being dragged to the gallows, people who were going to be executed for their crimes. And instead of saying, they're getting what they deserve, you know what he said? There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. There but for the grace of God goes Taylor Mertens. Do you hear the power in a statement like that? It's got a churchy word in it. The church has always been a place for truth, but that doesn't mean we've always liked it. Because when push comes to shove, we'd rather contemplate our successes rather than our sins. And yet the knowledge, the confession that all of us are sinners, that we all need grace, that we all need hope, that we all need mercy, it can be weirdly and wonderfully comforting. Because when you know that you're no better than anyone else, it gives us the freedom from pretending to be people that we aren't. We don't have to wear our masks when we come to church, basically. The writer Anne Lamott, I love Anne Lamott, she says, it's important for us to remember that everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, scared, even the people who seem to have it all together. They are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to other people's outsides. It will only make you worse than you already are. She could have taken that from Paul. And yet our understanding, that is the church's understanding of things like grace and mercy and forgiveness, again, churchy words, it's confounding, it's confusing, both to those of us who are in the church and those who are outside the church. Basically, what in the world are we talking about when we talk about God's grace? 
God's grace looks like a man who spends his entire Saturday putting together a bunch of ingredients from his pantry just so he can show up in church on Sunday and give away cupcakes to all the kids in church. Did you notice how uh, when George did that, he asked all of them if they could recite the Apostles' Creed? Did you notice that he asked how many of them are tithing to the church? Did you notice he also asked about their attendance in Sunday school? No, George didn't do any of that. You know what he did? He gave them grace. Most of our lives are predicated on this weird assumption that if we just try hard enough, we can fix every single little thing that ails us. If we just find the right self-help book, then we can finally help ourselves. If we adopt the right diet, then we're going to finally look like the people in those beauty magazines we see at the grocery store. If we start, keep, and maintain the perfect exercise regimen, then we're going to live for a long time, if not forever. Transformation is the name of the game. It's kind of everything. We're obsessed with this idea of transformation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. It's all about transformation. It's about living according to what is good and true and beautiful. He writes with this sort of single-minded and clear focus. He's answering a question that he raises one chapter before. How can we break free from the trap of doing all the stuff we know we shouldn't do? This chapter, the entirety of it, it builds with a ferocious intensity. It hammers home with accelerated diction the whole of the gospel. But, there's always a but. There's bad news too. Because in the entirety of Romans 8, there's not one single imperative verb. There are no instructions. Paul doesn't give us anything to do. Instead, this wondrous and beautiful text, a text we return to again and again at things like funerals and those moments when we are in crisis, it's all about the transformation that God gives through the Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead. It's a declaration about the business God is in, the business of forgiveness. It's how God makes a way where there's no way, about how God makes all things new. God gets all the verbs, but frustratingly enough, Paul doesn't give us anything to do. And boy, do we like having things to do. Ooh, yes we do. It's easy to pick on the church and her overwillingness to organize and mobilize when the truth is we actually spend a lot of time making committees about having other committees. We have meetings about meetings, but the world does the same thing too. Have you ever noticed that we're far better about talking about problems than we ever are about coming up with solutions, let alone actualizing them? We love to talk about what's wrong but rarely talk about what we need to do. We talk about what we should do or what we're supposed to do, but in church, you know, we almost never hear about what God has done. And what God has done is always better than what we can do. Luther reminds us that the law says, be loving. Be loving. It's the gospel that says you're loved. The crescendo of Paul's entire letter, it rises to that triumphant declaration of grace. Or for the sake of clarity, it's our belovedness that makes us capable of love. Telling someone to love doesn't make them do it. But when you know you're loved, you want to share that love with other people. Our transformation, it only comes from God. God, like a potter with clay. We can squirm, we can move, we can make a mess of things, but God loves water. And if you have enough water and you've got clay, you can make anything. You can certainly make something of all of our nothing. 
But Paul's not done. What then should we say about these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Who, he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us, will he not also give us everything? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Ooh, churchy words, aren't they? Justification. Condemnation. How much of our time do we spend in the business of condemnation? Condemning other people. Here are three examples just from the last week for me. Uh, almost a week ago, I was sitting at a lunch table with some friends, and someone brought up a recent Jason Aldean song. Maybe you've heard about this controversy. But the person brought it up not because he wanted to edify any of us. He wanted to know if we condemned the song or if we were on board with the song. He just wanted to get in condemnation. Over the last week, I've read more posts than I can count about the Barbenheimer phenomena. Perhaps you've heard. There's two new movies out. One's about Barbie. One's about... Oppenheimer. I've read all these articles about whether these movies are good for the culture or bad for the culture. Should we support the movies or should we condemn the movies? I got a phone call here at the church this week from someone in the press asking me if I would publicly condemn one of our local politicians for what he said. That's just three things in the last week, and that's just what happened to me. Condemnation. You know, the strange thing about being a Christian is that we've been freed from the need to be vindictive and judgmental, not only because we know that we're not really better than anybody else, but also because we know again and again, Scripture tells us that God is going to take care of what needs to be taken care of. God is going to rectify. God is going to justify. God is going to take care of what is wrong. That's what those words mean. God isn't just going to say, all right, let's put it all behind us. Let's move forward like it never happened. No, God is going to rectify, right what is wrong. And this isn't something that just happens off in the distant future. There are glimpses of it around us right now, these almost impossible, beautiful moments of grace breaking in and changing everything. Because whenever someone receives mercy, instead of condemnation, transformation happens. Whenever someone receives love, when they should receive punishment, a change occurs. Not so that they can earn the mercy they've received, but because they've received it as a gift. Again, belovedness leads to love. And we have a great example of it in the Bible. Perhaps you've heard of this, of this man. He's a wee little man. And he has a penchant for sycamore trees. We like to sing a song about him. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, come on down, because we're going to your house today. Bum, bum. We love that song. We teach it to kids all the time. There's a better than good chance that we're going to teach the kids that song at VBS this week. There's something about this Zacchaeus story. We love this story about this wee little man who wants to catch a glimpse of the Lord. And when we tell it, whether it's in vacation Bible school or in church, we turn it into this moralism. We say, be like Zacchaeus. Fix all the problems you've made. Because you know what Zacchaeus does after Jesus has lunch with him? He's been stealing all this money from the people in his community, and he gives it all back. And so we say, you need to be like Zacchaeus. You need to take a good hard look in the mirror. You need to figure out what you messed up and go fix it. Except you know what? That's not what the story is about. Zacchaeus is a wee little man. 
He's a tax collector. He's been stealing money from his fellow people, skimming off the top for himself. And you know what the result of it is? He has no friends. He has no family. He is completely alone, completely isolated, such that when the parade comes to town, no one says, oh, Zacchaeus, you're short of stature. Why don't you come stand in front of me so you can catch a glimpse of the hope of the world? No, they don't let him get close. He has to resort to climb to the top of the tree to see Jesus. And then Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, going through the town, he looks at all these people with all their goodness and their self-righteousness, and his eyes fall upon Zacchaeus. And he says, hey, Zach, you have any plans for lunch today? I'm coming over to your house. I'm coming over to your house. Can you imagine how angry everyone in that town must have been? I mean, they all knew it. They all knew that there was nothing good in Zacchaeus, and Jesus picks him. And best of all, Scripture doesn't tell us at all about their lunch conversation. That's the only thing I want to know. Gosh, I want to be there. I want to know what they talk about, but the Bible doesn't tell us. We only know that the hope of the world shows up for lunch, offers grace and love and mercy and worth to someone who does not deserve it at all, and Zacchaeus is never the same. Jesus doesn't say, all right, Zacchaeus, I'll give you salvation. You just got to give all the money back. No, he says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. It's no wonder to me that in the end, everyone abandoned Jesus. It's all good and fine to lift up the lowly for the last to be first. It's another thing entirely to know that Jesus spends all of his time eating with tax collectors and sinners, the bad people. Still more to discover that we ourselves are part of that crowd. Whether we're the first or the last, whether we're at the bottom rung or the top rung, all of us are sinners in need of grace. I think that's why just about everyone tries to run away from Jesus when he shows up in their life. Peter says, get away from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's hard to get close to the holy when you know that you aren't. I think because it feels like judgment. Ooh. Another churchy word. Judgment. We don't like judgment, I don't think. We're Methodists. We like food and singing songs. No judgment. But oddly, in a few minutes, we're all going to stand up. We're all going to affirm our faith. And you know what we're going to say? I believe in God who comes to judge the living and the dead. In a few chapters from now in Romans, Paul will remind the people called church that every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God, that all of our sins will be brought into the light. Basically, Jesus is coming to invite himself over for lunch. And what is he going to see? And yet, how does Paul start this chapter? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, there is judgment before God, but Christ's death on the cross, his willingness to go where we would dare not, he becomes the judged judge in our place. He has removed all condemnation. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. No condemnation. Grace is free, but it's also, weirdly enough, not cheap because it cost God everything. 
But there's that other churchy word, grace. Is there a more churchy word than that one? You could fit the whole of the gospel in it, I think. Grace. This is what Beekner says. A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is that we are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party would not be complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen, but you need not be afraid. I am with you. I love you. Nothing can ever separate us. It is for you that I made the universe. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you open your hands and you take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. Grace, God's grace, is a gift. So take it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.